Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey everyone, this is Mark Trichel with another episode of With Flying Colors. I'm excited today that I've got Mike Bell from Honigman, a partner at the Honigman Law Firm. Mike, how are you doing today? Very good, Mark. Thank you. So Mike is said to be a pioneer of the credit union bank purchases because he's been doing this for quite some time. You're probably, I saw a couple year old article that mentioned that you had done 35 plus. I'm sure that number is even larger now. Maybe you could kind of go into a little bit of that. So, but Mike is very well versed in the arena of credit unions acquiring banks and has approved, has been played a role in many acquisitions of banks by credit unions. And that's a real hot topic. That's a growing industry. And Mike, I'm excited to kind of have you here so we can kind of talk through what's going on in this arena in credit unions. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. I'll avoid talking too long about myself. It feels awkward, but you're right in that probably by accident, this idea of credit unions buying banks has largely become my life over the last 12 years, such that I don't have the exact math, but nine out of 10 of every transaction has happened, I've done, right? Whether it's 90%, 95%, 89%, it just depends, but it has truly become my life. This year, I don't remember exactly how many we have announced to date, but it's double digits. And it's extremely relevant right now. And the last thing I'll add, this, interestingly enough, over the last 12 years, really has run the gamut such that done it in over 18 states, done it nationally, meaning national banks, state charter banks, every type and kind of bank, publicly traded, privately held, has been purchased. And we have precedent for that. So it truly spans from Florida to Washington state to Michigan, to Maryland. It really kind of crisscrosses down to Arizona, our entire country, and it's quite relevant. So by accident, you kind of got into it. So like the first one, what was that accident? Did a client, credit union clients come to you and just say, hey, this is something I want to do. And then you became an expert in it. Is that kind of where it started? Yeah. So in the very beginning, it was around 2009. And I was having a conversation with a client. We were, to be honest, complaining about non-organic growth and how difficult it is in the nonprofit sector. Or, you know, when two credit unions want to get married, there's nothing wrong with this, but it's just different. The same thing happens in like the hospital world when it comes to nonprofit hospitals or other co-ops. It's just a different animal when it comes to combinations. And it's something that can't necessarily be one-sided or forced by one side or initiated, or you can't really go on offense in a way. So we were just beating about that challenge because the client wanted to grow non-organically. And this idea came up, can we buy things, right? What's out there that we can buy? We can go on offense. It's a business deal. It's dollars and execute. And I was a little bit younger then and naive. And I looked right at the Federal Credit Union Act and there was not one thing in there that said you could do this necessarily, but there was also nothing in there that said you couldn't do this. And I said, look, it's gray. Let's try. And we did. And I believe at the time, Mark, that was in your region, actually. That's right. The United Federal Credit Union Griffith Savings Bank deal in Northwest Indiana. 
And then sure enough, oddly enough, this is why I think it, you know, was fate. There was a little credit union in Massachusetts, not little, uh, great credit union, about half a billion GFA. They called me up because they saw a news story and they said, hey, we want to do this with this bank in New Hampshire. And I said, great, let's. And we did it. And then literally like a few months later, MeQ of Baltimore had an opportunity with a, like, I think an old thrift in Maryland and called me up and we did it. And next thing you know, three of these happened rather in a row. And then that became my life. Like it just fell that way. It's almost as if every conversation where somebody at a chamber of commerce in one town was the banker was talking to the credit union CEO, just as credit union mergers are sometimes born. And then they see your news story having worked on such an acquisition and the snowball was rolling down the hill. That's right. And the best part about this story, and this is what it's so true, it's humanity, it's us. Truly, this has like been my life for 12 years, happened maybe 48 times on my watch. Still to this day, Mark, I'll occasionally get a phone call and someone will say, hey, can you do this? We just heard about this. This seems new. I love it. And I'm like, yeah, no, you can. (laughs) It's interesting your reference to the Federal Credit Union Act, because as I knew we were going to be chatting today, I pulled out some documents to refresh my mind. And the delegations of authority that give the regional directors the authority to approve these makes reference to a section of the act on how they're going to do it, but it's in references to credit unions. So I can see that they've taken that part of the act and kind of retrofitted it into how they would evaluate it. It's how they would evaluate a credit union merger, and they set up the same parameters for the bank mergers, which makes sense. Yes, and I will say, and I mean this sincerely, to NCOA's credit, right? They were open-minded here. This was not a conversation where it was like, what do you mean? No. They were like, oh, well, let's think about it, right? Is it safe and sound? That's the question on everybody's mind. And we looked at it and luckily the first couple of deals we did, I mean, it was safe and sound times infinity, right? Like it just, there was no risk. And then the conversation went to, all right, if it's safe and sound, well, then how do we do this so it complies? And we kind of built the box, right? I worked with the general counsel's office and we decided- what do we want to see? How do we want to review it? How do we make sure it makes sense? And we built a box and it's the same box we're using today. And you bring a safe and sound transaction and they review it with open mind. It's been good that way. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Safety and soundness, obviously the key is, as you highlighted it, I know there was some discussions and actually a proposed rule a couple of years ago at NCUA where they were going to flesh out a little bit more how bank packages would be looked at. And part of the reason that happened I was at NCUA at the time was that certain regions might ask for a little bit more information and sometimes packages would get to the NCUA board because of the asset size of the acquisition. And there was a thick book that would be provided. And it might've even been board member Metzger at the time who talked about regional directors can approve bank mergers of bigger assets than this, and they don't need as much documentation to do it. And you're sending me the Encyclopedia Britannica uh, acquisition that on its face, you can tell it's safe and sound. And so there was this dialogue to get a little bit more consistency and better regulations out there on it. But I haven't heard that that's moving anytime soon. I don't know if you've heard anything through the grapevine, but I think that would be something that would be positive relative to this. And then the other side of that point is I know that the FDIC is looking at how they do bank mergers and or mergers period. And then that encompasses credit union mergers. Any thoughts on either of those topics? Yeah. So that rule, I like that rule. The proposed rule, I think is a fine idea. I'll be honest. It essentially 
formalizes what we've been doing for 12 years. So right. when it came out, I was like, oh boy, I got to stare at this. And I looked at it and was like, wait, this literally is the package we built together. I like the idea. So I can't speak to why it hasn't gone anywhere yet, but I can tell you that I'm actually a fan of it. I think it's a good idea. We're fine without it. We keep doing the exact same thing, but I'm hoping it makes it only because it just puts some formality around exactly what we're doing. And then I'll tell you, Mark, on the second point, it's interesting. I am not a political expert in any way, but I will tell you, I did notice this year, you read the headlines and I'm not deep in it. I'm a credit union lawyer, not a bank lawyer, but I was seeing these things about the FDIC and the FDIC board and politics in that. And then you'd hear from the president, some other senators about, hey, the FDIC is just rubber stamping mergers, right? That was kind of happening. All that has combined, and I'll tell you, and on my side and our little deals, I have noticed a slowdown at the FDIC. So I've not noticed a question of if I haven't had a transaction denied by the FDIC, right? Everything is approved to this day, but I've noticed they've taken a little longer. And it's interesting because I think there's something happening there between FDIC regions and DC. And like you said, there's now this new rule. They've got to work themselves out as an agency. I'm hopeful for them because I think there's communication breakdown and political slowdown and just some upheaval there that I've seen translate. I talk to these bank lawyers, obviously, because they're on the other side of every deal I do. And they've shared with me, yeah, boy, on anything we're doing now, it's not unique to credit unions. So whether it's a bank to bank deal, a credit union deal, a holding company filing, we've noticed in general a slowdown there. I guess it's good to hear that it's happening in every type of bank merger. You know, I'd heard some things that, because obviously the trade, there's the credit union trades, there's the bank trades, the bank trades you know, scream bloody murder any time a credit union acquires a bank. I'd heard there may have been some slowdowns on the FDIC side, and I guess I'm glad it's on everything and not just on the credit union acquisitions. And so the ABA saying that it's banks that shut down branches in low-income areas, and it's typically credit unions that might open up branches in low-income areas. So I think the argument that a credit union acquisition is in some way a bad thing That argument just doesn't hold any water, at least for my 33-year career. Yeah, and I'll tell you, so when we sort of experienced these delays, right, I got hyper-focused on, hey, wait a second, is it a problem with credit unions, right? Like, we got to figure this out. And I'll tell you rather quickly, that is not the case, right? It's an across-the-board slowdown. So I was, in quotes, relieved to hear that. You're right. And secondarily, it's interesting, we definitely have political pressure from the bank trades. They're doing their job. I don't fault them. They're doing their job. That's right. Yep. And the credit union trades are going right back at them. And and we've been back and forth. I will say, though, that, you know, in 2021, 2020, the politics has definitely amped up, Mark. So I have testified before more state legislatures in the last 12 months than I have in my career because of these political pressures that have been brought to bear and different things that are being considered or different things that we're working on. And I'll just make one last comment that I'll just give an example reminding me earlier this year. Yeah, not last year, earlier this year, I testified in South Carolina where we're trying to get some legislature relief and the statistics are compelling. I can't quote them exactly, but they have a nice study that shows in low-income areas, good or bad, banks are closing branches net, like significant. And on balance, credit unions are branch positive. In low-income areas. It's a fact. It's true. And when I was testifying, 
The bank lobbyists don't argue that point to their credit. They didn't go up there and try to say those numbers are wrong. They just went up there and essentially said credit unions need to pay tax. And yeah, the whole yeah, taxation but, side of things. But you're right. In the low income piece, it's a big deal. And I'll tell you, for the most part, those are the banks were buying in rural areas. You're not seeing most of the bank deals be in downtown Charlotte, North Carolina, right? Where every bank is. No, you're seeing these things come up, certainly in some in big cities, bank in Tampa, bank in Atlanta, but a lot of them in the suburbs, in the rural areas. That's where a lot of the opportunities are. Right, right. And I mentioned earlier the delegations of authority at NCUA and that they increased that threshold. Like I said, 500 million now that the regional directors can approve. The regional directors can deny anything, but an approval over 500 million needs to go to the board. I think that was a change in 2019. Did you notice that that's something that was $450 million in assets? Is that helping things move a little quicker at NCUA? Yeah, no. So I will tell you personally, I spent time in 2018 and 2019 to advocate for that change and get that change done because anything that goes to the board, you know, essentially adds a month to a month and a half on the timeline. And it's interesting, just in my conversations with the regions, I don't think anybody liked the fact that something that was $200 million had to go to the board, right? It just didn't make good sense. I think everybody agreed. So that was a welcome change in 2019. Now, I'll be honest with you, as I sit here today, I think it might need to go up. Or I had talked about at the time, it didn't quite happen, Mark, but maybe there's a way to caption it, not so much on ultimate asset size of the bank only, but looking at it as a percentage of assets of a credit union. So sure. you know, if you have a $10 billion credit union buying a $750 million bank, that's different from a $2 billion credit union buying $750 million. Yes, exactly. So, How material is it on the balance yeah. sheet? So I think there's maybe some more work to do there at some point in the near future. Sure. But it was a very welcome change in 19 and it's been very helpful. Yeah. And I can, again, just knowing that putting my former regional director hat on, if it's a package that had come to me that I knew I had the authority to approve, I can have a conversation with the people in my office. I can get somebody on the phone. I can ask them a question. Or if it's $10 million more and I know it's going to go to the NCUA board, I start anticipating the NCUA board might ask these 15 questions. They might not. But because of that, the size of the documentation that I'm going to need for my administrative record is going to be substantially bigger if I have to take it to the board as opposed to me relying on what I know after a 30-year career that I can have some conversations with my staff and have a leaner package. So that in and of itself can help speed that yeah, I agree with you. And I, I mean, I can't speak for board members or anything, but I think everybody agrees there's a safety and soundness threshold that can be met at the region and everybody can live with it and be fine with it. And then there's something that needs to come to the board. The question is where. And I think, you know, we could do some work there at some point to make it better, but it's okay right now. Sure. So you talk about this not being big metropolitan areas where the banks end up seeking out credit unions and it's more suburban and things like that. What's the normal way that you've seen where a credit union discovers that, let's say a credit union is interested in going out and courting banks, or mm-hmm. are banks courting the credit unions as buyers? I'm sure credit unions come to you and say, hey, if somebody comes up in my area that's interested, let me know. And perhaps even bankers do the same thing for you and your firm. How does that all? Yeah. So look, I think that for years, if we flash back way to the beginning, I was standing on street corners with a megaphone yelling to everybody I knew in the bank land, hey, we can buy, we're buyers. And that took a while, but 
that's now been done. And it's interesting, starting a couple of years ago, there's been a real flip here such that, you know, the industry's small, meaning there's probably 30 or 40 people, men and women, that are going to sell a vast majority of the smaller banks for their profession. And I have obviously gotten to know those folks or they've sought me out to get to know me. And interestingly, in the last year or two, when they have a small bank client, because the bank buyers for that client have shrunk, right? The industry is shrinking. They couldn't sell themselves like in the early 90s and they had 30 people in line bidding against each other, right? That's not what today is. They actually seek us out. So it is now regular where I'll get a phone call. Mike, I've got this profile of the bank in this area. Do you have a vetted, strong, safe and sound credit union that would be interested? Because remember, as a seller, two things matter. One, price. Two, actually getting that price. Right. You can have someone bid all day long, but if they can't close, if they can't get regulatory approval, if they're risky, it does you no good. Right? It hurts you as a seller. So they're looking for someone that can get it done, that is not an execution risk, plus someone that would be interested. And I'll tell you, Mark, in the last couple of years, I've seen a trend where these sellers are not necessarily, more often than not, they're not putting together a book and splashing it to the market at large. They're hiring these professionals or their lawyers or somebody to say, hey, can you go out to two people, three people, right? Can you call one bank, call one credit union, let's see what happens. And we're getting way more opportunities that are really exclusive, one-on-one type opportunities that if we're interested in, they'll give us a minute and see if we can't put a deal together. That's happening far more often now than it did years ago. What do you think is driving that? Like you said, the lack, because there's less banks around, so they're just, or they know that you're out there and can be a matchmaker, if you will. Yeah, I think that as a seller, you know, there's risk if you don't go to the marketplace and getting a fair price. I mean, you have to manage that your fiduciary duty there. But there are so many risks when going to the marketplace. So in this time of talent shortage, talent war, a lot of them, I think, are scared to go to the market and say, hey, we're for sale, because then you're kind of, you're exposed. You could lose people, lose customers, you name it. And they're really nervous about doing that. So we're really an interesting safety valve in that you can go to us, probably not your direct competitor. And, you know, you lower some of those risks. And then on the good side, we become a proven friendly buyer, meaning we're going to hire most of the folks because we want to, not because we have, we're going to keep the branches open because we want to. And our business model is different such that they're sitting here thinking, wait a second, I'm going to get a pretty good price. By the way, we never overpay. That's what the banker said. That's Yeah, I was going to ask you that. But we're going to get a pretty good price. Our folks are going to be taken care of. Hey, that's neat. Our branches are going to stay open. So we're not the guys that close the branch. And oh, they support the community too. I know they're a credit union and we're supposed not to like them, but the story ends up being pretty good. It's a win for all constituencies. And that's now become realized such that we're being sought after as a buyer. Interesting. Interesting. It, yeah. And so that's the one thing you hear out there is that credit unions in order to get into the game are paying prices that are either higher than banks or too high. I've read that in a couple articles and that's categorically not the case. No, and and this is a part of the testimony I've given in Iowa, South Carolina, some other states. This is why it's skewed. So every time there's a deal that gets done, it gets announced, right? When it's announced, no one ever announces who loses. 
who comes in second, third, fourth, or fifth place. Sure. If a deal doesn't happen, no one announces that a deal doesn't happen. So I can say on my end, right, when I look at this, and let's just say personally I've done 48 of these. Mark, I've tried to do over 800 of these. And you look at my credit union clients that have purchased three or four banks that have been successful. They've lost 30 times. We bid all the time and either we decide not to do it, we're the losing bidder, a bank beats us. It happens all the time, but it just doesn't get reported. Right. Because it shouldn't, it's confidential, whatever. Sure. So it's really a skewed perception. And I was explaining this to some senators. I said, guys, you got to understand how this works. And I said, even in bank to bank deals, if you look at the 250 bank mergers a year, there are 5,000 losers that have occurred in all those deals. So you got to keep your perspective. And once you understand that, we don't overpay. We can't walk in and make a bank sell to us. We can't force a transaction. And we don't wildly overpay because we can't. It wouldn't be safe and sound then. Sure. That's a great perspective. I hadn't looked at it with that. I hadn't known that. And that really gives me a great perspective relative to that claim by banks. And let me assure you that if we were as successful as they said, even though I'm in my early 40s, I would have retired five years ago. Sure. Right? If we sure. won every bid we made, I'm not working right now. It, my math when I did it, when I was preparing to testify a few months ago, literally, I think we lose... 89 or 91% of the time, if I look at all the math online, every bid we've made and every time we've won, eight or nine out of 10 times, we don't win. And that's a statistic for a normal bank buyer too. Sure, this is just sure. an industry statistic. It's competitive, but you also, you go in knowing what your top price is, is and you won't go over that because you're right. bidding a fair price. Yeah, that's right. Because things impact, you know, in a credit union, again, we have to be safe and sound. We have to be responsible with our members' money. You know, if we truly overpaid, overpaid, Mark, we would have this material slug of goodwill that hits our books. The regulator would start getting mad. Wait That's a right. second. It's one thing for a $2 billion credit union to have $30 million in goodwill. I did no needles move. Turn that into $100 million in goodwill, $200 million in goodwill. And then people start saying, hey, wait a second. Yeah, What's can, happening? That can catch attention. That's for sure. So you mentioned testifying in Iowa. I think I read somewhere that that's one of the states that does not allow credit unions to buy banks. Do I have that right? Yeah. So if I gave you my naughty list, if that sounds professional yeah, enough, yeah. today, as far as I know, and this is important to explain, there has never been a state or nationally that has made a decision that a credit union didn't have the power to buy. That is undisputed. The disputes have always been the bank's power to sell, which seems so weird, but that's what the disputes are. So in Colorado, due to some peculiar Colorado legislation, Colorado state chartered banks don't have the power to sell to a credit union as we sit here today. That happened a few years ago. The legislation hasn't been changed. They're on the naughty list. But hear me out. It's the bank not having the power to sell to the credit union because I've done transactions in Colorado where credit unions have purchased bank branches. They could buy a nationally chartered bank in Colorado. The issue is a state chartered bank. In Iowa, after the fact, after we close a deal there, the Iowa regulator issued a letter saying, hey, bank, you didn't have the power to do this. It was very odd. It happened after mm. we closed. So is the law of the land in Iowa today that a state chartered Iowa bank cannot sell to a credit union? Probably. I'm not going to give it to them 100%, but I'm going to say probably. And I'll say, Mark, it's enough that it has chilled activity. So what Iowa needs to think about is, since they made that decision, what's happened? Well, look, Green State, wonderful credit union from Iowa, a client of mine, has 
bought a bank in Illinois. We're about to close on their second bank in Illinois. We announced we're buying a bank in Nebraska. Look at the unattended consequence of what's happening there. So that's something for them to keep in mind. And then at the moment in South Carolina, I believe there's an issue with their legislation. Can a state chartered South Carolina bank sell? We were really close to getting that fixed this year. I give credit to the credit union league there, Dan Schlein and the league and the Carolinas have really done good work here. I'll be honest that the Senate committee I testified before were exceptionally gracious. It's the best experience I had. And I think they were very close to fixing it. I wonder if next year we don't get it fixed. It's about economic freedom, truthfully. It's about banks' power to choose. And I think they get that in South Carolina to their credit. And I think we could get it done. I think we just fell victim to calendars and procedure. You ran out of runway for the year, but maybe next year will be the time. And then, Mark, if we're going to keep going on the naughty list, I'll tell you that right now, There's a question in Tennessee. We were successful in court, unequivocally successful, to be honest. And the attorney general on behalf of the banking commissioner just appealed that. I believe we're going to be successful in that appeal. I mean, the lower court opinion was fantastic. So they'll come off the naughty list in the very near future. There's a question in Nebraska that was litigated. We expect a ruling any day. That's kind of it. Unequivocally, Colorado, we have a legislative problem. I was questionable. South Carolina gets solved soon. Tennessee and Nebraska should be solved. Stated a different way, there are 18 beautiful states in America where you can do this and we've done it a hundred times and they have no problem with it. And nationally, I should say this, FDIC, OCC, the Fed, NCUA, no issues. Everybody recognizes that this is safe and sound and everybody has the power to do it. That's right. That's a good way to summarize that. Anything you want to add on the sub-debt arena? I know that by some research that a gentleman who works with me did for me related to sub-debt, that a lot of the times when banks issue sub-debt is so they can buy other banks. And coincidentally, there are credit unions that go into acquiring sub-debt for that same reason, because they can get the economies of scale, use that newfound equity to go out and do a bank acquisition. Any thoughts on that whole topic? Yeah. So multiple years ago, I'm not the best with dates. I interacted with kind of the NASCA's closed door meeting, you know, they have for their regulators. And I went in and I was talking about this and I brought up subdebt because at the time it wasn't really out there. Subdebt was something that small troubled credit unions do to stay alive, right? That was the wisdom at the time. And interestingly, without conveying anything secret, there was a good response from those state regulators saying, hey, we actually think this is a safe and sound use, in essence, of of sub-debt. And I took that, I took away, because I think it is. Me too. But I left that a few years ago and talked to some of the vendors in the space. And it's true. And Mark, now we have a track record. So the NCUA, I believe every region agrees that that is one good use for sub-debt. And in the last, really, 21, 2020, I have seen now a paradigm shift where the kind of credit unions I work with, the 150, 200, not necessarily largest, but sophisticated, larger, wanting to grow, they're issuing sub-debt. Sub-debt is no longer what you do for a small troubled credit union. It's what you do if you're a strategic credit union. So as an example, I do a lot of work with the guys at Olden Lane. I think they're top of class in this space. We talk every week now and because it's constant. Two years ago, they were still my friends and I talked to them all the time, but we were talking once every three months. 
So I had recently was telling a group of credit union CEOs, I think this is the year of sub-debt for credit unions. What I didn't say is everybody should issue it. It's a great strategy for everybody. What I am saying is it's something for you at least to look at because I'm telling you your peers are and they're deciding to do it more often than not. The last thing I'll add, even though we have rising rates and I defer to the real smart people like Olden Lane on this, but it's something I've noticed. The rates for subdebt, though, I think are still staying down or aren't rising as quick. So you can issue subdebt at very attractive rates. And I'll tell you, I do believe it's a supply and demand piece where there are buyers for this that are out there actually more than there is available. So I know a lot of community bankers just from the space I'm in, and multiple community bankers have called me and said, Mike, who do we talk to? We want to buy some credit union subdebt. Like they're getting aggressive about it. They need to know how they get in line for it. And that's still there. I think there's still a lot of buyers. So it's helping keep those rates very competitive. And now's a good time to issue. That's great to hear. And I would agree that NCUA's perspective on secondary capital slash sub-debt has grown substantially over the last three, four years. It is a tool that they are comfortable approving in the right situation. It's not just for that small troubled credit union, as you described, which is what it had been before. Olden Lane, they'll be on a future podcast here coming up. You're right. They do it right and they do it well. And like you're a market leader in bank acquisitions, they're a market leader in sub-debt. And I agree with you that it's just going to keep becoming a bigger and better tool. And it's something that if you have the capabilities of doing it either as risk-based net worth or because you're designated as a low-income credit union, either way, it's something that a credit union should take a look at to round out. It's an option that's out there that can help them in many ways. So honestly, my conclusion there is I'm not saying issue it. What I'm saying though is responsible management and boards of credit unions, I think you at least have to look at it and then make a decision, yes or no. But I think it's a to be blunt, it's a mistake to not give it some time to then decide on the strategy. And that, by the way, Mark, that's the same for buying banks or bank branches. I'm not saying it's for everybody. Sure. I'm saying you need to at least consider it and decide yes or no. Both of them are right answers. The problem comes if it's not in front of your face, if not on your radar, and you're missing debating that strategy or the sub debt strategy. I think that's the problem. That's the challenge to credit union CEOs and boards. You have to at least consider it. Sure. Well, and it, if that opportunity happens where it's the bank down the street that says, hey, we'd be interested in you being interested in inquiring us. And if they hadn't vetted that, if they hadn't talked through it at their strategic plan, they're a little bit behind the eight ball as far as being ready for that opportunity. So it's always good to discuss what your options are out there. And as you said, it's not for everybody, but it is for a lot of people and it is for a lot of credit unions. Yeah. And I've talked to plenty of boards where the ultimate answer was, it's not for us. And I said, good job. That's the right answer. Like check it off your list and move on to the other things. You got it. Again, it's the folks that haven't beat it up a little bit that I worry for, because I think you just have to make a yes or no. So you're ready either way. That's great. That's great. So Mike, any questions I should have asked you that I haven't or any last thoughts on this topic? Yeah. So I'll just leave you with kind of one last summary here. I think this is kind of encapsulates it. You know, as we sit here today, Mark, I can unequivocally say that the bank, like whole bank space is exceptionally active. So we don't need to get into the reasons why, because there's 50 of them, but just to look at it, Every small bank, billion or under, that's in America today is for sale or thinking about selling or will be for sale in the near future. And that's nobody's fault. There's good reasons for it, but it's real right now. Same on the sub debt side. Again, 
It's not for everybody, but right now is the moment to make that decision. This year, are we for it? Are we against it? It's really hot. It's talked about in all, I would say, best-in-class credit union boardrooms, both of these ideas. And then third, I will tell you that since the pandemic, bank branch transactions, you're not buying the whole bank, but you're going to get the real estate, the deposits, and the loans. You're kind of like a mini bank deal. Those really heated up in 17, 18, 19. My clients needed liquidity. Those deals bring liquidity. It's, it's an easy way to get liquidity. And then they literally disappear during the pandemic. Like it just shut down. You know, their banks didn't really see a reason to sell. My clients certainly didn't want to buy. They didn't need more deposits right at the moment. <laughs> but literally as of 30 days ago, right? 45 days ago, I think that has now just flipped on its face. And in the next month, I'm going to announce a branch deal transaction for the first time, I think in two years. And life has just exploded there. So I've heard from clients, hey, you know, we might use some liquidity, right? We might get back into looking at some bank branches. More than that, though, I think the bank branch sellers, these larger community banks or regional banks, it's now advantageous for them to sell again. And I'm seeing life happen. I just got a call 30 days ago. Hey, we got some branches in the Southeast. We're going to bring to market. And I was like, here we go. Literally dead. And there's life coming. So I would let everybody know this is now going to turn back on. It's, it's been rather dead. And then one last thing I'll leave you with that always gets me really excited. So recently, recently, I have been hearing from more small credit unions or something close to my heart that I love to do that haven't said, hey, we need to merge or we want to merge, but they're calling me saying, how do we figure out if we need to merge or should merge? And I've been hearing more of that from smaller credit unions that want to just understand what does it mean? Should we or shouldn't we? And how do we think this through? And I do spend time working with those, the management and boards just on the idea of it. And I'll tell you that I'm not for them or against them. I make no political arguments. I love small credit unions. But recently, a fair bit have realized, Mark, the leverage they actually have. And I tell them as a small credit union, you actually have more leverage than you realize. If we snap our fingers, I can find four or five credit unions to fight over you and to take care of you, your people. Your... And I don't know if that's known necessarily. So I have seen more recently, more receptivity to that, more understanding of that. And I'm seeing a little more activity in that area. That's great. That All three of those are great wraps. We could actually maybe do a separate podcast on a couple of the things you said there. A lot of information there. Mike, this is, has been thought-provoking. I think the listeners are really going to enjoy it. So if someone listens to this and they go, you know what, Mike's right. I haven't evaluated this previously, but it's something that their credit union wants to consider. How would they go about getting in touch with you? Yeah. So first I would say just my phone number, my cell phone number, they could call me anytime. It is 269-591-0466. But I would encourage them to, like you, Mark, I'm very active on LinkedIn. It's easy to find me there. I do work hard to keep that updated. So every time there's a deal announcement or there's some trend I'm spotting, I'm sharing it there. And I follow you and look at what you're doing. And we're kind of doing the same thing there in our spaces. So I would encourage folks just to track me down on LinkedIn. Even if they never want to call me, that's fine. But they can follow along here passively. I won't even know about them and just see kind of what's happening around them. And then finally, I'm always available via email as well. It's my first initial M, last name Bell, B as in boy, E-L-L, -L, at my law firm, Honigman, 
H-O-N-I-G-M-A-N.com. Pleased to speak to anybody. And Mark, I look forward truly to your podcast with the experts from Olden Lane. I know you know them and I know them and I, I am quick to shout. I do think that they're top of class and certainly good to hear from on Subdebt. So good choice bringing them on. You got it. Thanks, Mike. This has been a great time chatting with you. I want to thank you for your time. Thanks, Mark, very much. And those of you out there listening, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you'll listen again soon. This is Mark Treichel signing off with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 